Beloved listeners, when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, it uh, caught the world off guard. But uh, what has been more surprising, perhaps, is the strength of Ukrainian resistance, David versus Goliath. Andrei Kirchhoff is a prolific writer, fluent in six languages, and the author of 24 books. Now, for decades, he's kept a personal journal, and late last year, he published some of the entries. Diary of an Invasion covers the period leading up to the initial attack and five months into the war. It provides a a glimpse of what life is uh, like in Ukraine, and it reveals a people and a culture fighting for survival very much against the odds. Andre, a warm welcome to our little wireless program. During the first months of the war, you spent a, a lot of time thinking about your past. So let's begin with something of your childhood. You were born near Leningrad. Uh, yes, uh, it was 1961, uh, a week or more after the first uh, flight of Gagarin to space. And uh, I'm lucky to be called Andrei, not Yuri, because my father was Yuri. So uh, my mother decided not to have two Yuris uh, in the family. But my father was a pilot and military pilot at that time. And two years later, he, together with 100,000 Soviet officers, uh, was dismissed from the army after the Caribbean crisis. And he had to look for a job in civil aviation and uh, my grandmother lived in Kiev, so the whole family moved uh, to Kiev with my older brother, Mikhail, uh, who is seven years older than me. And my father started working as a test pilot for Antonov Plains factory. And uh, since then, actually, I always lived in Kiev. And that's how, actually, I became Ukrainian. Andrei, you've also thought back further to the lives of your, well, beyond your parents to your grandparents, because they too have been defined by war. Well, my uh, mother's uh, father died uh, in Ukraine in 1943 when he was uh, an officer in the Soviet army fighting to liberate Kharkiv, which was bombed heavily now by, by the Russian army. Another granddad, Uh, He died in 1980, but he also was an officer in the army, and he uh, went with the Soviet army up to Bucharest. And uh, actually, my grandmother, who lived in Kiev, she was divorced with him. He moved back to uh, Northern Caucasus, because originally he he was from Don Cossacks. But also, of course, my, uh, my mother was a child when the war started, And uh, she, uh, with her mother and her brother, uh, spent uh, two years in evacuation uh, where they found out what is famine like. They were behind Ural Mountains in in a village. What is uh, incredible that they actually were sent to a village that was founded by deported Ukrainian peasants who didn't want to join collective farms. That's why... Uh, hundreds of thousands of them were deported from Ukraine to Siberia, to Kazakhstan, to Ural Mountains. So, I mean, the, the, the war, I think, defined the destinies of all families in the Soviet Union. 
In the months leading up to the invasion, we all, of course, knew that Russian troops were being massed at the borders, but very few thought that they'd really invade. What did you think? Well, I I didn't believe that the all-out war is possible. Actually, I just couldn't accept this idea. Uh, But I thought that there would be an escalation in Donbass because obviously Putin was very unhappy uh, with uh, what was happening in Crimea. I mean, the next Crimea was not recognized as Russian territory. Therefore, there were lots of economical problems, no investments, and even Russian bankers didn't want to open offices of their banks in Crimea because they were afraid of sanctions. And Donbass was only half occupied by, by Russia. And of course, Putin wanted to have all of Donbass. Uh, so uh, that's what I expected. I, I think many Ukrainians expect, expected only escalation in Donbass, but not uh, uh, cover bombings of all cities uh, in all regions of Ukraine. It must have come as a shock when, uh, you know, when the capital, Kiev, was was attacked. Well, I think it was more than shock because, I mean, we were woken up by explosions outside our windows with my wife. The children with their friends were in western Ukraine in Lviv for a long weekend. And I remember, I mean, it was five o'clock in the morning when, like, I jumped because of these explosions and I rushed to the window and uh, looked down at the street uh, and there was nobody, no cars, no people. And I just froze. I was paralyzed for almost an hour. I was just looking down and thinking uh, or trying to think uh, what will happen next. And then one hour later, there were two more explosions, two more missiles exploded in Kyiv. And it was already like uh, the beginning of the understanding that this is a real all-out war with a, an enemy uh, which is huge, powerful, and completely unpredictable in the level of violence. One of the things that was occurring at the time was a film version of your novel, Grey Bees, and uh, that, of course, suddenly ceased. Yeah, I mean, the film team was uh, not far away from the front line in Donbass, in Lugansk region, in a village similar to the one described in the book, and uh, they they were, like, uh, guarded or uh, secured by the Ukrainian military who told them that they should be uh, ready any moment to be evacuated. So actually they paid uh, several local people uh, with their cars to, to stand, uh, stand by actually and to be ready to take them if necessary. And at some point, and it was I think three or four days before the invasion, uh, actually the Ukraine officers ordered the film team to leave immediately. So the shooting was not finished and the film is not finished until today. Andre, where were you and what were you actually doing on the night of the 24th of Feb? Well, on the evening of 23rd, we had guests. And uh, I cooked borscht, Ukrainian national soup, very thick with a lot of meat, beans, cabbage, beetroot and tomatoes. And we had, we had a wonderful company, but there was a, an air of uh, uncertainty. I mean, uh, like... Uh, among the guests, we had uh, uh, an ambassador of Brazil, uh, two of my friends, journalists, one, uh, Tim Judah, uh, who writes for New York 
Times and uh, Luke Hardin, who writes for The Guardian, and then a couple of other friends, including English uh, journalist and writer Lily Hyde, who actually lived already for many years in Kyiv. And uh, I mean, we were talking, of course, about possibility of the war, but when we decided already to say goodbye to each other, it was after midnight, suddenly everyone started exchanging telephone numbers with each other. And I mean, it, and it was like, uh, like saying goodbye, actually. And, and, and almost before you could catch your breath, you and your family were refugees. Well, first we were displaced persons. I mean, we uh, stayed one more day in uh, in Kiev, but we spent a night with uh, Lily Hyde in her apartment next door because uh, we live on the top floor of the old building and we decided it is dangerous because, I mean, we have also mansard. The roof is just over our flat. So we stayed overnight in her place. And uh, next morning I checked uh, GPS and I noticed that there is no traffic jam on the western exit from Kiev, and I uh, told my wife that let's go to the village because I mean we have a house in the village, one hour drive usually from Kiev, like eighty kilometers, uh, fifty miles, and we didn't take anything. I mean my wife just took a, a, a Bible and uh, one of my latest books and some necessary things, and then we we just got in the car and and then suddenly actually she phoned her friend. Uh, Lena and uh, and asked her if she wants to to be taken out of Kiev. She said yes. She came with her son. We left Kiev, and ten minutes later we got stuck in the traffic jam, and we saw already Ukrainian tanks on the left side of the highway to the west, and then we heard the artillery fire because this was already the beginning of the Battle of Gastomel, which was only eight kilometers away from this highway. We did manage to get to the village house in four and a half hours. And then I received a phone call from my friend. He asked, where are you? And I explained that we are in uh, near uh, Brusilov town. And he said immediately, drive on, drive on, because the Russian tanks are moving in your direction. And we managed actually to, to get out and to drive further uh, in the direction of Lviv uh, before the uh, this Zhitomir Highway was cut uh, by a Russian army. 22, 22 hours to drive a little over 400 uh, kilometres. Several times, several times you write that uncertainty is one of the worst parts of the war. Well, because uh, once actually you understand you are not coming back home immediately and you don't know when, uh, you start thinking, where are you going? I mean, we, we, we decided to go to Uzhgorod on the Slovakian border behind the Carpathian Mountains, a very nice town, multicultural, with lots of Ukrainian-Hungarians living there. And uh, I had a friend there, I have a friend there who is a professor at the university and a writer, and he said that, uh, please come and stay with us. And actually, first we stopped in Lviv to pick up our three children and their friends. So, I mean, uh, a minivan uh, uh, with seven seats was more than full. I mean, I think we were nine. And we came to his place in the end. I mean, after problems in the Carpathian Mountains where we had to also because of the traffic jams, we had to stop overnight, and it was minus 10 outside. Uh, but anyway, we, we got to 
Michael Roshko, my friend, and we stayed several days with him. And then uh, a lady uh, who never met us gave us uh, a key from her small flat. And, and we stayed in this flat for four months in Ushgorod. And from there, I was traveling by car to Slovakia, living car at the airport, traveling to different events to talk about Ukraine, but also traveling in the region and meeting people. And uh, I mean, there were like uh, uh, dozens of thousands of uh, refugees or displaced people like uh, us in Ushgorod and uh, around Ushgorod. So it, it was completely different life. And, uh, and of course, I mean, we didn't know what will happen because every day we had uh, air raids, alerts. Sometimes we heard explosions because also Transcarpathian region was bombed, mostly railway infrastructure. And uh, I mean, like now, I don't know when this war is going to be over. And at that time, it was even um, worse because, I mean, now... Uh, I can be sure that the Ukrainian army will fight and will stop new advances. But uh, then uh, we didn't have any uh, military help from Europe. Uh, uh, in fact, actually, even Kharkiv region was uh, liberated from Russian army uh, with Soviet ammunition, not with Western ammunition. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the uncertainty is still here, but... Uh, but it's different kind of uncertainty, and it's quite terrible to say. But I, I'm sort of accustomed. I'm ready uh, to 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 follow this war into next year. I understand that it will not be easy to to stop this war. I'm talking to the man who's been described as a post-Soviet Kafka, Andrei Kirkov, about the war in Ukraine and his diaries of an invasion. So bombs sow the seeds of death, but you note that, uh, and I quote, war awakens the humanity in people. And you've seen a lot of that awakening, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were helped from the very beginning. I mean, I mentioned that we got stuck in 70 kilometers long traffic jam in Carpathian Mountains in the cold in the night, it was probably around one o'clock in the morning. And uh, if you run engine, then you hit the car. But if you, you, you waste petrol, uh, if you stop running engine, you get frozen. And I mean, the filling stations were mostly empty along the road. And if there was a petrol, there would be like one, two kilometers queue of cars. So, I mean, I was thinking what to do, and I rushed to a nearby hotel which was full but the the man in the the reception desk he gave me a telephone number of some local young men who recently bought abandoned soviet touristic hostel and this man actually lived like 20 kilometers away in the mountains i called him and explained that we need a place to stay that we are sort of eight or nine and he explained me where to drive which way to take and uh, and I went, I found this hostel, and he found us, and he opened for us uh, three rooms, which were like abandoned, but he brought everything we needed for the beds and towels. And uh, I mean, I was extremely grateful. He switched on the electrical heaters, but then actually he left us, and then he went back to the traffic jam, and he brought with him to his hostel probably 15, 20 cars with families who were in the same situation as we. 
So, I mean, we were all extremely lucky to have a night, a quiet night in a heated place uh, in the middle of the winter night. That you tell a charming story, a whimsical story of a, uh, a Scottish charity who sent a pizza truck to uh, residents on the, on the front line. Well, I mean, I think there were three pizza trucks like this uh, traveling in Ukraine and mostly visiting the areas which were heavily bombed or have destroyed uh, in, the, yeah, in the vicinity of the front lines. But uh, after that, actually, I, uh, I found out that there were some actually Ukrainians who were turning their minivans uh, or minibuses into traveling kitchens to cook food and to distribute it for free. And uh, now, I mean, uh, we, we have a wonderful story in Kharkiv. It's uh, uh, the city I mentioned, a huge city which is partially destroyed by Russians. Uh, a Japanese retired man sold his flat in Japan, came to Ukraine, opened a cafe to feed the people of Kharkiv for free. And I mean, he is doing this already for several months. And uh, now he doesn't have his own money left, but he receives donations from Japan and he spends uh, all the money on the food and he cooks himself uh, with the helper from Kharkiv, from, with a lady actually who, who also does uh, a lot of work there because, I mean, they have uh, big numbers of people uh, coming and actually uh, asking for food. You describe the way people just get on with it. Efforts to continue schooling for children, farmers going back to their fields, sometimes with body armour. Yes, I think I understand these people because, I mean, in order to remain sane in this situation, you have to work, you have to try to lead the same way of life that you led before the war. Putin would have us believe that Ukraine and Russia's history is one and the same, but you write that they've been, or well, they have very different, if overlapping, histories. Tell me a little about that. Well, the, the main point is that uh, Ukraine never had a royal family. So, I mean, Ukrainian territory was run by Lithuanian kings, Polish kings, and in 17th century, it was for over 100 years independent and Ukrainians were electing their own leaders. I mean, it was not elections in today's sense. They were choosing, they were meeting and then choosing a leader who was called Hetman. And first of all, he was head of the army, but at the same time, he was head of the territory. And uh, Ukraine was always in the war. I mean, the Ukrainian Cossacks were fighting against Poland, against Russians, sometimes together with Turks and Crimean Tatars against Poland, sometimes against Turks. So there were no fixed borders, but there was a, this habit to be free and independent. And only because of the war in Poland in 1654, Ukrainian hetman Bogdan Khmelnytsky asked Russian Tsar for help. And actually, I mean, once uh, Russia helped in this war, Russia decided to keep Ukraine to itself. So they decided that they will now control uh, Ukraine. And I mean, this kind of uh, occupation of Ukraine in 17th century didn't happen overnight. I mean, it, it took uh, decades because, I mean, the, the hetmans uh, were still chosen, but they were not really 
the masters of their land. They were uh, like uh, heads of autonomous Russian region. And slowly uh, uh, Russia imposed itself actually on Ukrainian territory. And then quite logically, they started fighting against Ukrainian identity because Ukrainian identity was the main obstacle. Ukrainians are individualists, unlike Russians. They don't like authority. They didn't accept Tsar. And actually, they, they, they were always like anarchists, and they remain anarchists. And the best proof of it is that we have more than 400 political parties registered in the Ministry of Justice. <laughs> well, that's, I think some of the most interesting things in your journal concerns the differences in national identities between uh, the Ukrainian and the Russian. And I love the point you say that Ukrainian national identity is devoid of fatalism. Ukrainians almost never get depressed. No, no. And they always believe that they can change situation if they don't like situation. That's why we had two Maidans, we had protests, and that's why the political elite is afraid of the civil society because civil society is much stronger than political elite in Ukraine. I like the idea of the, of the, of the anarchist streak. I had no idea it was um, such a Rubik's Cube of complexity in terms of political parties. Yes, but in fact, I should mention that the biggest party, uh, biggest army of anarchists was organized also in Ukraine in 1918 by Nestor Makhno, the leader, political leader of the anarchists at that time. And this was one of the most powerful forces in the civil war after 1917 October revolution started by Lenin. So, I mean, situation in Ukraine was much more complicated than in Russia, because in Russia, actually, the Red Army was fighting against the White Army, about, against Tsarist Army. In Ukraine, we had six armies fighting each other, including two armies which were fighting for Ukrainian independence. Andrei, do you think uh, Putin is trying to erase Ukraine's separate identity, traditions, culture? Uh, of course, he's. I mean, he's doing this because I mean, he's fighting also against Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian literature, uh, Ukrainian language. I mean, the, the language was uh, an enemy of uh, Russian Tsar's Ukrainian language from 18th century. In 1720, Peter the Great signed the first decree banning publications of religious texts in Ukrainian, and then the policy of Russification, the policy of uh, forced replacement of Ukrainian language with the Russian language began, which continued for 300 years. And that's why, I mean, we have big cities in the central Ukraine, in the south, speaking mostly Russian, and only small towns and villages speaking Ukrainian. I mean, the Ukrainian language is coming back now. I mean, it's taken over the territories it lost uh, during the last 300 years. And with this, with the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian mentality is returning to the areas which were very collective, like uh, they were representing still Soviet mentality or Russian mentality. But, uh, I mean, the museums are destroyed. Why, I mean, why would uh, an army, uh, an artillery destroy museums uh, or destroy libraries? Well, we've seen we've seen ISIS we've seen ISIS do that in another region. But you're absolutely right, and you're right to describe what's going on as an attempt to, at genocide. But you make the point that it's having the opposite effect. It's strengthening Ukrainian identity, isn't it? Well, it is because Ukrainians understand that this is the war for their existence. 
And I mean, uh, and Ukrainians, uh, they are used to be independent. They, they cannot imagine actually living in a country like Russia where you can be imprisoned for sharing a post on Facebook. Although Facebook is already banned there together with Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. But, but generally, I mean, you, people are arrested now for having a slogan, no war, because no war apparently is the discreditation of the Russian army. And there is a criminal punishment for this. So, I mean, Ukrainians, they, I mean, if I can imagine that Ukraine is lost to Russia, I mean, Ukrainians will move away. They will not stay in the country and it will be the end of the country. So that's why actually Ukrainians are fighting so uh, vigorously and why they are uh, ready to sacrifice themselves for the country, for the independence of Ukraine, for their families. I underlined a sentence in your journal. People cannot live without water, without air or without culture. It is the invisible armour of the human soul. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And actually, this is also war for Ukrainian culture. Because, I mean, uh, can you imagine that Ukrainian classical literature, for example, was almost never translated in foreign languages because I mean, publishers abroad always thought that it's only great Russian literature that comes from post-Soviet territory. And, and now Ukraine has to present itself, present its culture, present, present its history to, to the world in order to be accepted and uh, to be helped. None of, uh, none of us can predict how long the war will last. But you point out that even when the war formally ends, it won't be over for the Ukrainian people. Well, I remember that when I was 11 years old and I was in the school, I had to choose one foreign language out of two to learn, to study, English or German. And I said to teacher then that I will never study German because Germans killed my grandfather. And uh, this is happening now with the Russian language. I mean, people refuse uh, to, 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 to teach their children Russian. I mean, they say that actually it's better to start with English. And uh, Russian is practically, not officially, but uh, in common knowledge, is the language of the enemy in spite of the fact that uh, probably half of soldiers speak Russian. So, uh, I mean, Russia will pay for this war for... 20 or 30 years. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the, the actual dangers with unexploded shells and rockets now lying in wait for, you know, in this, Ukrainian soil. Uh, th th this is a separate issue. This is a very serious issue. And even specialists from uh, Germany, from America, they say that Ukraine will need between 8 and 15 years uh, to demine the territory and still there will be many more i think mines left so uh, it is of the dangers of the future but uh, it's not the only issue ukraine has to face after the war andre you write in the diaries my biggest fear is losing my sense of optimism do you have a sense of optimism left uh, I, I do. I do have. I mean, I had uh, problems with it uh, in the first couple of months of the war. Uh, I'm not uh, extremely optimistic, but I know that Ukraine will 
uh, win in the sense that Ukraine will defend its independence and it uh, it will remain independent and democratic country. But of course, I don't know yet the final price Ukraine will have to pay for this. Andrei, thank you very much for coming on. Andrei Kirkov, author and president of Penn Ukraine, incidentally, and the book we've been discussing is his Diaries of an Invasion. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.